0: Wellington has seen its fair share of protests over the years, but none quite like this. On Saturday, they set up a strip poll opposite Calendar Girls and 60 picketers danced while giving out pamphlets and chocolate. A group of dancers and strippers joined by a member of Parliament. MP Jan Logie, the Green MP. And a rock and roll legend.
1: Billy Bragg, the singer who was doing a concert in Wellington that night, even stopped by.
0: The group is called Fired Up Stilettos and are protesting for better workplace rights and conditions.
2: A group of strippers working for Wellington's Calendar Girls Club have signed an email asking the strip club's management for better pay and written invoices for their services. Nineteen girls who attempted to collectively negotiate their contracts and were fired by Calendar Girls.
0: One protester held up a sign that read, I want to strip off my clothes, not my rights. I'm Sarah Robson, and today on The Detail, it's an industry that has historically operated behind closed doors, but now the issues are being laid bare. How do strip clubs operate, and why are workers saying they're getting a bad deal? Erin Gawley is a stuff reporter based in Wellington. So basically what happened
1: was a group of about 25 strippers at Calendar Girls Wellington all decided that the contract for 2023, which reduced their cut of the pay for services um, to around 50%, sometimes lower, wasn't good enough. They wanted to keep their previous 60% cut that was in their contracts for previous years. And so they basically said to management, hey, we're not going to sign this collectively. We want to come back to the table with you and talk it over, see if we can get a better rate. And the response of the management to that was firing 19 of the girls. So they are independent contractors and they could just kind of terminate the contracts like that, but they did it pretty much overnight in a Facebook post without giving many reasons. And it seemed to be all about that negotiation.
0: Yeah, you mentioned there that they are independent contractors. So there is that ability for people who they contract their services to, to immediately terminate them. Why has it become, I guess, such an issue? Even though strippers are independent contractors,
1: they actually don't have a lot of the rights that go with that because the contracts they have with strip clubs tend to be pretty punitive, really. They can be fined for things that are quite arbitrary, like rudeness, swearing, uh, inappropriate behaviour, which all seems a bit absurd in a strip club setting. And they also can't work for other strip clubs. It's really an industry-wide problem where they have these contracts that the strip clubs give out and they just pretty much sign them because there is no room
0: for negotiation. What have the clubs themselves, Calendar Girls, other clubs, had to say about this?
1: Not a lot, really. Um, So what we've been hearing from Calendar Girls is mainly related to the specific group of strippers and kind of what happened there. They say that they are in the in their rights to, you know, get rid of dancers who they don't want to work for them anymore. That's been their response. But as an industry, we haven't really heard a lot in response to, to the concerns about these contracts.
0: Vixen Temple is a sex worker, activist, and former stripper. She's not involved with what happened at Calendar Girls,
3: but she's been working in the industry since 2018. I started stripping... Towards the end of finishing my Bachelor of Arts at university, I minored in theatre and I really wanted a job where I could use my theatre skills. I have celiac disease. At the time, I didn't realise I had undiagnosed ADHD, but I was just really struggling to uphold a nine-to-five job. So I I had a few friends that worked at the local strip club and I thought, okay, you know what, I'll give it a go. So I applied. I did a few shifts while I was still working in retail and I realized I loved stripping so much and it complemented my lifestyle beautifully because it meant I got to choose my own hours. There wasn't a limit to my earning potential. And because I'm a creative, I'm a writer, I'm a performer. It meant that I had time to invest in my performing creative career and still support myself. Like what I was earning in the strip club you know, in three shifts, I used to have to work like a full-time job for. And so I suddenly had all of this freedom and I was, I was very grateful and very excited by this, this career adventure that I could lean into. So I ended up leaving my day job and just stripping. What's your reaction
0: having, having worked in, in this area to what's happening at the moment?
3: When I first found out about everything that was going on, I wasn't at all surprised. I was mortified for the dancers that were fired, but sadly it didn't shock me because having worked in this industry since 2018, I myself have had my fair share of awful interactions with strip club management and I've had issues in the past with the contracts We're meant to be independent contractors as strippers, but I've worked in clubs where I have felt more like an employee and it's been very frustrating. And when I've gone to management to try and not even negotiate the contract, just inquire about why is it like this, they turn on you and suddenly you're not getting the shifts you wanted or you're getting fined extra. According to Vixen, some of the workplace issues brought to light by the Calendar Girls dancers are not unique. The first club I ever worked at, a few months into there, they they brought in a rule that we... I had to all wear ball gown dresses in between stage spots because I think they were trying to go for this like glamorous, classy vibe, <laughs> but they brought in this rule. Okay. If you're not on stage, you have to be wearing a ball gown. So we all had to go off and get these ball gowns and they had requirements. Like they couldn't show off too much cleavage. They couldn't show off too much skin. It was so weird because here I am thinking like I'm meant to be a stripper. I'm meant to be like, my body is a commodity. Let me flaunt it so that I can get bookings and make money. So that was the first red flag for me where I was like, okay, I'm starting to feel a little less like a independent contractor. I'm now being, you know, I now have a uniform requirement, which is a bit frustrating, but whatever, you know, I I get to work at this club. They offer me a place to provide my services. I'll, I'll suck it up. But as time went on, they started being in talks of, we might bring in fines and that, that started stressing me out because I thought, oh, wait a minute, you already take a percentage off my tips and lap dances. And now you're going to find me for potentially being sick or loitering in the changing rooms or ridiculous things. So that made me a bit nervous, but that club never ended up bringing in fines while I worked there. It wasn't until I moved up to Tamaki Makoro and I started working at a club up there before being able to work there. I had to sign a contract that agreed to being fined if I was sick and I didn't provide a doctor's note, I had to pay a $1,000 bond just to work there. And I suddenly was like, oh, okay, this feels
0: weird. So some workers at clubs get fined for breaking
3: rules. How does that work? Generally how it works is at the end of your shift when you're getting paid out, you'll be told, oh, we're fining you this much money because you were asking a customer to tip you and it was a bit too aggressive or you know, you were loitering in the changing rooms for too long or you missed your stage spot or you didn't take your lingerie off in time. So we're taking this much money off your cut. So here you go, here's $20. How do rosters
0: work at these clubs? Do you let clubs know what your availability is and they work around that or are you sort of told when you need to be there?
3: At the clubs I've worked at in the past, usually every Sunday they'll text all the dancers Send in your availability. You let them know your preferred shifts and what shifts you can't do. And they do their best to give you the shifts that you want and not roster you onto the ones that you don't want. But if you're not manager's favorites, they will potentially roster you onto a shift knowing you can't work it so that they can fine you for it or They'll prioritise the dancers that they really like, they'll give them the shifts that they want, and then they'll just sprinkle the rest out to everyone else. Um, In my experience, when I've gotten along with management, I've always gotten the shifts I've asked for. Once they don't like me anymore, they start rostering me onto shifts that I've specifically stated I'm not available for.
0: Do dancers have any power to negotiate the terms of those
3: agreements that you do have with clubs no we have no power at all to negotiate the contracts if you do everything they say and you know you you suck up to them they'll they'll treat you well but the second you start to go hang on a minute i don't feel good about the way you're treating me they turn around and they somehow make you feel like you're the problem. Like, oh, well, no one else complains. It's, it's all, it's it's just you having the issue. You're just being a diva. You're just making unfair demands on my side. You know, they're making money from me risking my, my, just risking my everything, you know, like this, this job is quite a risk in the sense that society has this really awful view of, of sex workers. So when I go into the club, I'm risking, you know, men, being creeps. I'm risking people coming in and, and hate criming us. I'm risking being exposed to family members who don't know what I do and being disowned by, you know, my whanau. And so when they get to hide behind their manager role and not make those risks and then profit off the risks that we take, and then we come to them and say, Hey, I feel unsafe because of this thing in the contract. Here's what you could do to make me feel better. And they turn around back and say, oh, you're being ungrateful. We don't need you. There are so many people that will come in here and take your job. Don't you dare make these demands. I don't have to renew your contract. So either deal with it or maybe this industry is not right for you.
0: At the crux of this whether strippers are independent contractors or whether they're really employees. Dr Dawn Duncan is a Labour Law lecturer at Otago University. She explains the difference. In
2: law we have these two categories of people, we have employees who get all of the benefits of that employment status, so that's minimum terms and conditions of employment, things like sick leave, annual leave, the ability to challenge a termination or bring a personal grievance, the ability to access the employment jurisdiction. And then in the other category we have independent contractors, and these are people who are genuinely in business for themselves. So they could be running a small business as a company or as a sole trader. Um, They don't tend to be covered by the same employment laws. They don't tend to need or want the government uh, to regulate them in that way. And so this is groups of people often like tradespeople or uh, consultants who are providing their services uh, in business for themselves.
0: And one of one of the key things around contractors is they are things like they have the ability to set their own hours, etc.
2: Yep, absolutely. So we have these two categories: employees and independent contractors. But we also have this group in the middle, who we call uh, misclassified or uh, victims of sham contracting, where they are in reality employees but they're being described as independent contractors. Uh, And the reason that employers might misdescribe somebody, uh, would be to get away with not paying all those employment terms and conditions. So the reality of the situation is that they're not getting the benefits of being self-employed. They're not really in business for themselves. They're not getting all that flexibility and uh, ability to charge their own prices. They're actually employees, and they're getting deprived of things like all those minimum wages, minimum terms and conditions, uh, and all those minimum rights
0: what interests you about what's going on in this particular industry why do you do find it so interesting
2: well i think generally we are getting to a point where more of these categories of workers who have been described as independent contractors, are challenging that status through the courts. So we've seen groups of workers like the Uber drivers...
3: In a major ruling against global giant Uber, our employment courts declared four current and former drivers are employees rather than independent contractors. The
2: taxi drivers... The Employment Relations Authority
0: determined that Southern Taxis was treating its employees as contractors to save money.
2: Courier drivers... A class action has been launched by courier drivers wanting to be recognised
0: as employees rather than as independent contractors.
2: Bringing these cases to get status determinations. And I think strippers are one of these groups of workers who for a long time have been described as independent contractors, but in reality may not have been. Uh, And it's now time for that status determination to happen, for things to be uh, corrected perhaps.
0: So what's actually involved
2: in seeking a status determination? Both sides would present evidence to the court... And the court then has to determine the real nature of the relationship. And we have a set of uh, tests from case law that we use to try to work out if somebody is in reality an employee or a contractor. So the first of these tests is what we call the integration test, where we ask to what extent these workers are integrated in the business. They're a central part of that business model. The more central these workers are, the more likely they are to be employees. The second test we have is called the control test. So we look at the reality of the situation, we say who has more control in this relationship? Is the uh, employer or principal exercising the kind of control you'd expect in an employment relationship or in a service provider business relationship? The more control, the more like an employee you are. If the employer here is telling them when to work, how to work, what to wear, um, what equipment or, or tools they should use, they look more like employees. The third test is what we call the fundamental test, and that's just that question of, are they really in business for themselves? So you look at all the facts and you say, are these people able to profit from their business? Are they able to innovate? Are they able to invest in their services? Are they genuinely determining prices for their services? Looking at the way that they're charging, are they invoicing? Do they really look like they're in business? Or do they really look like employees that are just being described as something else? How big a problem is this in
0: New Zealand? And perhaps maybe we look at the recent Uber case as kind of a case study and and how
2: something like this might progress. So the government put out a a discussion document looking at options for regulating to protect vulnerable contractors. So the problem is not that we have contractors because we do have that group of workers that are perfectly happy as contractors and are are making lots of money in in those arrangements. Uh, But there is that group of vulnerable contractors where we do need some kind of additional protection. So other countries like uh, the United Kingdom... Uh, has a sort of third category of worker uh, where they get some conditions. Other countries have increased enforcement, uh, perhaps given the labour inspector more resources or more power to take these status determination cases or even in some cases determine employment status at a low level. The number of uh, contractors in New Zealand isn't huge and it's been relatively steady for a while. But we still have... Uh, a significant number of workers who are potentially being exploited uh, in some quite serious ways, getting less than minimum wage, uh, not having job security, not being able to challenge exploitation that they're perhaps uh, experiencing. uh, And there's a real justice issue uh, for that group of workers. With the Uber case, that was just taken by
0: one driver or a small group of drivers? So that was only a status determination for one person. So how do you go about getting these standards set across whole industries? So with the
2: Uber decision, it was in relation to one Uber driver. Um, And the case itself says this is only a decision about one Uber driver. But in an industry where everyone has largely the same contract, if one Uber driver is declared to be an independent contractor, then it's going to have flow and effects Um, to the others or or certainly to Uber to change perhaps their contracting arrangements uh, more broadly. There is the option of a class action and a class action uh, is being taken on behalf of the courier drivers. So I think it's a couple of unions uh, are currently getting together groups of people who fit within their category of courier driver to bring a class action. That'll be the first class action status determination we've seen in New Zealand. So there is that option of taking a larger status determination claim and getting a determination uh, sector-wide.
0: But this stuff is so slow-moving. I remember stories from a few years ago about um, courier drivers and this exact problem. I mean, as part of this just the justice process moving so slowly and um, people not having the resources or the knowledge of their rights that that's why there's never any traction
2: on this. We've got the issue of the slow-moving justice processes, although they're not quite as bad in the employment jurisdiction as they are in some other areas of the justice system. Uh, We've also got the issue that you've potentially got cases against quite big players with deep pockets. And what that means is they can often delay litigation. They've got a lot of money and resources. So they're often David and Goliath battles. The other thing there is that it's really about bargaining power. So individuals who are being exploited under sham contracting arrangements don't typically have the bargaining power to negotiate their way out, and they need some additional help or support.
0: From a workers' rights perspective, um, the sex work industry and strippers—you know—this is something that we're finally seeing out there in in the public eye. Do you have any reflections on why, as a society, there's less of that stigma or taboo around this industry, and we're seeing we're seeing people, you know, go and asking Parliament for for changes in this area? I mean. That's kind of fascinating from an employment and labour law perspective, presumably, for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, after we saw the legalisation of prostitution, that helped, I think, to uh, take away some of the stigma uh, around the sex industry generally. I think also there's, um, with younger generations, there seems to be a lot less willingness to accept poor working conditions than we've seen for some decades. And that might be a combination of a high cost of living and unaffordable housing and a whole lot of other economic circumstances where workers are much more willing to stand up. They're more willing to strike. They're more willing to go to social media. Um, And so it may be that this is also fitting into a broader trend or kind of um, social movement towards better working conditions generally. Back to Vixen.
3: For a long time, sex workers haven't felt like we can seek help with the exploitation that we experience from management due to the negative stigma associated to our jobs. And that's what management really banks off. And there's always been NZPC, now is Sex Workers Collective, who you can seek services from and help from and advice from legal advice. But in recent years, I've definitely noticed a, a cultural shift towards sex workers. And I think a lot of that has to do with the pandemic and the way that we saw essential workers, you know, not being paid enough. Elder generations of sex workers have said to me, like, it's incredible the way that the general view of sex workers has changed since they entered the industry, you know, like back in the the early 2000s Mm. even. So there has definitely been a huge shift. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, sex work activists, social media granting us voices to be able to talk about experiences and and speak for ourselves. The industry is not inherently exploitative. It's exploitative because of the fact that the general public treats us as othered. They, They treat us as a taboo. So management is able to get away with this stuff. But now we're bringing it out of the darkness and where we're telling the world and people are listening. People are listening.
0: That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Mark Jennings. And thanks to Erin Gawley, Vixen Temple and Dawn Duncan. Ka kite